Well, tonight we're concluding our three-month study in the book of Amos, uh, God's shepherd prophet. And as I've just mentioned recently, it has not been uh, an easy journey for us. But it has been, at least for me, I can say, rather clarifying, I think. Because it's been a reminder that idolatry and injustice go hand in hand. That a life without spiritual or social righteousness produces ruin. That people that say they worship God but hate their neighbors are lying to themselves. Personally, I think that's a very needed message in our day when it's so easy to be a part of a church and say we believe in the Lord but then treat his own people like the scum of the earth. That shows a disconnect between us worshiping God in spirit and truth and living that out for the sake of the people around us. So this evening, we'll conclude with this final section of Amos by looking at this fifth and final vision from the Lord. And it's a vision that's the most terrible one of all because it's absolutely unavoidable. It's inescapable, the judgments here. But here's the good news. As you heard just a moment ago, the book ends not with judgment, but with good news. After nine chapters and months of ignored sermons and calls to repentance, God not only announces judgment, but beyond that, and in a more permanent and eternal way, announces restoration and salvation. And this underscores, I think, one of the great and wonderful truths of the Bible, something that's so easy, I think, for us to overlook, that God's loving mercy always has the final word. When sinners refuse to repent, even then God is pursuing them for the purpose of salvation. So let's look at this fifth vision as we begin tonight. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 specifically. Now before we get to that restoration, unfortunately, we have to go through a little bit more condemnation first. But just as a way of reminder, for the last two weeks, we have talked about um, these uh, of these five visions that we've seen. In the first uh, uh, f- Sunday, we talked about a couple of them. In the second Sunday, we talked about a couple more. But the first two were um, um, visions of the utter destruction of Israel and even the surrounding territory because of famine and fire. And this was, of course, to punish Israel for her moral um, and ethical atrocities and failures, worshiping false gods, neglecting the poor amongst her ranks. And so she deserves this kind of judgment. But Amos prayed that God might forgive the people of Israel, even though they showed no sign of repentance. And God immediately said, I relent. I'll forgive them. I'll, I will not destroy them. And so he does this for two times, but then we get two more visions where it seems that the Israelites have not learned at all from God's mercy. They've continued to reject it. And so Amos has two more visions where, one, God is standing atop a a city wall, maybe Bethel, maybe Samaria, and he's hanging down a plumb line, a level, to show the, the, the crookedness of the people of Israel. And then in another one, he's, he's looking at Israel as if it were a, a basket of, of summer fruit. And although it's ripe, you're starting to see the rot come into it a little bit. And in both cases, the metaphor is clear. God sees Israel as crooked and rotten to the core, totally beyond reform, totally beyond repentance in and of herself. 
And there's nothing even Amos can say or do to stop the Lord from dealing out the justice that Israel deserves. Now, in the middle of these um, these visions and Amos preaching on this, we get some pushback from the people in power. First of all, uh, Amaziah, the high priest of Bethel, pushes back against Amos. You know, we don't have any confirmation of this, but uh, Jeroboam, who was the king in Samaria, one of his his court prophets, one of the guys he had close to him was was Jonah. And so Jonah's probably hearing this too, and he's grinding his teeth a little bit. He's probably reacting in the same way that uh, that Jeroboam and Amaziah are reacting. But God says this clearly, because you hate me, and you show this by taking advantage of the needy, I'm going to utterly destroy you. All of the, the religion of Amaziah, all their temple worship, none of that can stop it. All of the armies of Jeroboam, none of that can stop it. God is going to finally deal with Israel. And so now we come to the fifth and most stark vision, where we see the Lord beside the altar, meaning that he is in the temple. He's at the place where sacrifice and appeasement is made, and he's looking out at the world around him and is ready to absolutely destroy and level everything. Not only that, he says, I will chase Israel to every corner of the globe and slaughter her. So even if they were to get out of the city, get out of the country, even if they were to get away from it all, he'll find them and deal with them. So let's look, starting in verse 1 specifically. So Amos sees this holy and sovereign Lord standing next to the altar. Again, this is where sacrifices are to be made for the sins of the people. But the Lord is not there to be appeased because no sacrifices are being made, no legitimate ones anyways. And so he's there from this place where he's supposed to be appeased to show how unappeased he really is. Now, the Bible passage doesn't explicitly say this, but this is some educated guesswork from some scholars. Now, it says the Lord is in the temple and he's about to destroy the temple. Now, there's probably a little wordplay going on here to suggest the Lord is in the temple in Zion, that is Jerusalem. So he's in the legitimate temple, the temple that he under, uh, uh, or he through Solomon's reign and wisdom constructed. So he's in the temple that he has established and he's looking out probably at not he's not talking about his own temple but he's looking out at that false temple up in Bethel to the north this kind of a mirrored image of the one in in, uh, Jerusalem but instead of having an altar in it to a god whose image can't be contained by wood or metal they have a golden calf in the middle of it and so he's looking from his temple at that temple and saying, I'm going to destroy that temple. In other words, their religion is about to be toast. This is kind of reminiscent to me, I think, of how in the beginning of, uh, of Amos in chapter 1, we read how the Lord roars from Zion. I think we're almost coming back to that image. We've, we started in Zion and we've, Amos has gone on a tour of the nations and in Israel, now he's back in Zion again. And the Lord is roaring, ready to, in his wrath, destroy this false temple with this golden cow. And he's about to, in some sense, we don't know how, maybe summon the heavenly armies, maybe summon the, the, the tectonic plates themselves to shift and strike those capital pillars, those strong 
pillars that can't be knocked over by human hands are about to implode and uh, the whole false temple is going to come crashing down on the head of all the hypocrites and Bethel. And all that are not killed in their religious observance will scatter like cockroaches and they'll go everywhere. But whether they run to the courtyard or the city or out in the region or the wider country, they'll be fugitives that he'll hunt down with the sword. Every last one of them. As the old adage goes, they may run, but they can't hide. And so look in verse 2 and 4. This tells us where they try to escape to, where the people will think about getting to. If they try to dig down into the earth, or if they try to fly up to the stars. So if they try to hide in Sheol, literally if they die and go into the netherworld, if they're buried in the core of the earth, the Lord says, I'll go down there and drag you back up. If they try to fly to God's heavenly space to get away and to to him in the skies, he'll pull them back down again. They're not going to get away from him. He's showing the extremes here. Heaven nor hell can help these people get away from him. If they hide on the mountaintops, they go up to Carmel and hide in the, the, craft, the, 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 um, um, the crooks and the crevices up there, he'll strike them down with lightning and fire. Or if they go to the seafloor, if they somehow get the technology that James Cameron has to, is making all those Avatar movies, he's filming in the Marianas Trench and all that stuff. If they were able to get those submarines that can go down there, the Lord will send a sea serpent after them to bite them. I think this is the same beast that, we're, that we read about in, in Job in the latter part, the Leviathan, this great, mysterious, primordial sea monster that represents chaos and death. So, in other words, a, a force of nature so powerful, nobody can withstand it. You know what, in Job, you know the Lord, how he says, he talks about it? Oh, I have that thing on a leash. That's his way he's going to unleash on them. Quite literally, unleash it on them. Even if they willingly go into captivity and exile, in Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, wherever they might go, God's justice won't be thwarted. They think, oh, we'll go to another people with God's there, and we'll go out of the land of Israel, and the God of Israel won't be able to chase us. He'll chase them down there and use their own corrupt pagan people to destroy his own. In other words, wherever these people go that refuse to repent, that refuse to treat others with human dignity, that took advantage, that were debaucherous, that were um, rapists and murderers and thieves, and they did it all to their own glory because they wouldn't repent, the Lord will always have his eye on them. And this is striking. I'll keep my eye on them, but for harm, not for good. They'll be in the crosshairs the whole time. You know, in, in movies when you see uh, somebody walk into a building and all the red laser dots on them because the sniper rifles, that's how Israel is going to be all the time walking around with a little red laser on her forehead. Israel just does not understand the wrath that they have un. un- Leashed here. But Amos tries to help Israel understand in a way that preachers love to do. When their own words fail, they start quoting hymn lyrics. 
So if you look in verses 5 and 6, we get here a fragment of some ancient Hebrew hymn. Now, we don't have the, the, the fuller text. This, it's just been a, something that's been lost to history, but we do have this fragment of it. And we can't tell, reading it in English, that it's um, meant to be a song, but it's got some markers in it in Hebrew that would indicate that. You know, you, re- you read interesting things in the Bible. Uh, I always love that passage in the Old Testament uh, where all of a sudden the author says, Is it not written in the book of Jeshare? He said, Jeshare, I don't remember reading that in the Bible. You know, is it not written the wars of the kings? Well, what is that in the Bible? It's something that's just been lost to history. The Lord obviously didn't think we needed that. Or this morning, as Deborah read to us so beautifully, Paul said, I pass it along the letter that the Laodiceans got from me. There's no Laodiceans, you know, first Laodicea, second Laodicea. There's things like that that just go missing. But what is important, the Lord preserves And so what he preserves is this powerful song of praise and worship about the power and majesty of God. In it, look at verses 5 and 6. God is portrayed as a king of a vast heavenly army. He is so powerful that anything he touches melts like a snowball next to a volcano. And the earth mourns as the floodwaters greater than the Nile come crashing down on civilization. The king of heaven who builds the skies and laid the foundations of the earth like they were just some tile that he picked up at Home Depot. He'll summon the waters from above and below and he will wash away all of Israel's moral and social filth. The Lord will do this. The Lord is his name. So that's a song that would have been familiar to them. That's maybe a song they used to sing in church. And how little did they know how that was going to come around to bite them in the rear. That song that they sang as hypocrites turned out to be more true than they could ever imagine. And so thus ends not only Amos' last vision, but his little um, his closing song. And now it's time for Israel to respond in verses 7 through 10. Now somewhere between verse 6 and 7, Israel responds to Amos. We don't get, again, we don't get an explicit what they say, but their attitude is communicated clearly. After all they've heard, after all of what Amos has said, after all the clear signs that judgment was upon them, do you think Israel responds to this imminent apocalyptic disaster with faith or repentance? Is that how they respond? (sighs) Folks, Incredibly, unbelievably, staggeringly, stunningly, Israel still refuses to repent. After all this time, refuses to repent. Israel might be just, after America, might be the most stubborn nation on the planet, uh, filled with people that will say, I'm going to do it my way and nobody else's. And verse 10 we kind of get a summary, I think, of what Israel actually, the, the, what they said, what they, how they responded. Now, they don't say this, but Amos rebukes them for having an attitude of saying, disaster will never overtake or confront us. And so, after they've heard everything they've heard from Amos, their response is, you can't be telling the truth because we're God's chosen people. He loves us. We're the elect. 
Nothing bad is going to happen. Don't you remember how he brought us out of Egypt? Don't you remember how he gave us this land and gave us David and Solomon and, and now Jeroboam? Don't you remember how, uh, how, how good we have it and how far we've come? He's never going to touch us. But how does God respond to that kind of statement, that kind of arrogance that, said, that says, we'll claim God's protection, but we won't listen to his laws? We'll love it when he gives us things and, and uh, status and, and wealth and all that stuff, but we'll hate people and we'll despise the worship of him. How does God respond to that? Now, here's just an incredible, one of the most beautiful things in this book. God shows that he doesn't just care for Israel, but he cares for all the nations that surround Israel too. Even some of Israel's enemies, their classic enemies. The Lord doesn't just care for the neglected and needy of Israel. It turns out he cares for everyone. And that was the whole purpose of him choosing Israel in the first place. Not that there was anything special about Israel. God says that in the books of Moses. He says, you know, I chose you because of how small you were, how unimpressive you were to show my glory through you for the nations. He chose Israel not because Israel's great, but because God is great for nations like Israel. And so in verse 7, God says, rhetorically to Israel, aren't the Cushites of Ethiopia just like Israel to me? Now, folks, that would have been scandalous to hear. God's never shown interest in Ethiopia that they've known about. But he says, aren't the Cushites just as precious to me as you are? He goes, didn't I also rescue the Philistines? The Philistines? You mean the people that gave us Goliath? God rescued them? Yeah. He rescued them from uh, Kaftor and the Arameans or the Syrians that were a little bit north of northern Israel. He, reckoned, he, he reckon, er, um, rescued them from their captors and oppressors. He rescued them just like he rescue, rescued Egypt or rescued Israel from Egypt. See, folks, the Israelites have forgotten that God has elected them not as an end unto themselves, but to be a blessing to all nations. That's Genesis 12. When we first thing, one of the first things we learn about Abraham is that God chooses Abraham out of Babylon to be a blessing to all the nations. That's God's intent. He spells it out. He doesn't hide it away. He is going to make a kingdom of priests for the whole world. Now, I, like, I just happened to stumble across this recently, and I just thought it was great. Billy Graham would preach about this from time to time. You know, he's an international. He's American. He was Southern Baptist from North Carolina. Um, in fact, one of my uh, uh, seminary professors um, grew up right next door to the Grahams uh, when he was in North Carolina. So they go over to their house for dinner, and he would tell a story about the Graham family. But I, I love how, um, how Billy Graham preached about this. He says, you know, the Lord chose Israel, a nation that was located in the center of the known world at the time, so they could be missionaries to all the continents that surrounded them. You look at a map of the ancient world, the known world at the time. You got Europe out here, and you got Africa down here, and you got Asia out here. And the center of all of that, the thoroughfare of all of that, is Israel. 
Isn't that interesting? God chose a, a, a hub in these people. And I think Billy Graham and his sermon echoed Amos here. Jesus belongs to the Africans, and he belongs to the Asians, and he belongs to the European because Jesus belongs to everyone, black, brown, or white, because Jesus belongs to the nations. He came through Israel, but he came for the purpose of being a blessing to all the nations. It's interesting, if you go and read, I think it's in Genesis 10, it's called the Table of Nations in some Bibles. You got all the names of these people, you know, all the, and the, the island people over here and the, the Cushites and the Kenites and all those folks. You think, what's the purpose of this? Those people appear all over the Bible. And so often we see, even though they're outside of the people of Israel, we see people of God come from those nations. We see that God's intention in, in Genesis 10, he's giving us a spoiler alert saying, these are the people that I'm going to end up redeeming one day. I'll work through Israel, but I'm coming for them too. And folks, you can be rest assured that when God's people believe that the Lord's blessing is only for them and people that look like them and people that live like them and people that are from where they're from or sound like they're, they sound, you can be rest assured the Lord to Christians as well as to Israelites will utter this word of judgment. And verse 8, look, the eyes of the Lord God are on this sinful kingdom and I will obliterate them from the face of this earth. We forget to our detriment as much as Jesus loved the church and died for it and Revelation in those first chapters, these people that lose their love for the gospel, lose their love for missions work, lose their love for um, sharing all of what they have with one another, Jesus will remove his lampstand from those people. And so we're left kind of in a, a, a sad state here because Israel has just continued to ignore God. But however, and this is a big however, the Lord makes another declaration. He says, but I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Meaning, I won't totally destroy this people. I just said, I'm going to totally destroy. The Lord, in punishing the guilty, will also show mercy, specifically to those that repent. Now, verse 9 shows us an image that's very very recognizable to us, something we see often in the Gospels. There is going to be a sifting of grain um, from chaff here. The Lord will shake Israel out, and all the chaff will fall off and blow away into the wind or be tossed into the fire, but there will be a little bit of grain left at the shaking of that shiv that there will be a remnant that the Lord can plant and grow a new harvest out of. And so although his judgment is about to come on on Israel in ways they can't imagine, and Assyria is going to be so barbarous to them that, I mean, it just turned, just give you goose pimples and hair stand up on the back of your neck listening to how they used to torture people methodically. I mean, just horrific. That's about to be unleashed on them. But the Lord says that he will ultimately save 
those that repent, even if it takes them way too long to do it. And that's what brings us to our good and concluding word tonight. Let's look at these last uh, five verses, verses 11 through 15. This is the passage we've long been waiting for, a little bit of hope, a little bit of promise. And that promise is the Lord promises, no matter how bad the people have been, no matter how roughly um, they're about to be treated by their enemies, he is going to restore them and save them in the end. And we have essentially two wonderful promises here. Verse uh, 11 through 12 shows us the first promise that God is going to restore the Davidic kingship. So Israel's about to go into exile. Samaria is going to be a barren wasteland. And in a few hundred years after that, so will Judea and all Jerusalem. All the, all the Jews, except for a few stragglers, will be gone. The temple will be nothing. The people will be in rags. It'll, it just won't be a nation anymore. It'll be just a few uh, meager survivors. But from the midst of that, God is going to raise up a kingdom more powerful than this world's ever seen through Israel. That's the first promise in, in verses 11 through 12. But then the second promise is that not only that, but God is going to restore the promised land to his people in such a way that there is going to be such, um, it's going to be so lush, so green, so verdant, so productive that it will, the, the people won't be able to harvest fast enough. The food will just keep growing. They'll have everything they need. And that we see that in verses 13 through 15. Old Testament scholar Gary Smith says it this way, Ruins, desolation, and breaches will be replaced by building, planting, and possession of the land to demonstrate a great reversal that will take place at some point in the future. All the terrible things that are about to happen are going to be utterly reversed, utterly undone. You know, there's a a word that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the, the famous Christian fantasy writer that wrote Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, all that stuff, he loved words. That man was a brilliant wordsmith. And there was a, a word that he coined, it was eucatastrophe. It was E-U and then catastrophe. And the idea that he, that he developed theologically out of reading the scriptures and, and, and seeing the, the vision of what God would have is that the human condition is a catastrophe. You look around at what's going on in our world, war, rumors of war, sickness, uh, unrest, plague, earthquakes, flooding, fire, uh, uh, the dissolution of nations, dissolution of families. It's just it's, it's terrible what this world is going through all over the planet. I don't know how anybody could sometimes just, I mean, it's depressing reading local news or national news, but then you start incorporating global news, anything. I just, I don't ever want to know anything that happens ever again. <laughs> it's depressing. We're in a catastrophic state. Tolkien talked about when God and Christ comes back, it'll be a catastrophe, meaning that it, God will so reverse the catastrophe that everything that bad that's ever happened will be so undone that we can't possibly imagine it. I love that idea, that it'll be so powerfully reversed. Not only it will, it will be like it not have happened, but only good could have come out of it. It's just it's, it's, it's an idea that's beyond our ability to really conceive of it. 
But that's what I think we see here. And that same day, the, the, the day of the Lord that we read about in verse 11, the day that is meant for Israel's harrowing and punishment, in that same day before the sun sets, the Lord will begin restoring his people. He doesn't wait. He's, the only way in which the Lord, the Lord is slow, he's slow concerning anger. He's slow concerning punishment. But when it comes to mercy and forgiveness, he's immediate. In the twinkling of an eye, he's ready to do this. And so we see the fallen shelter, the tent of David, will be gloriously rebuilt. Not in Bethel, not in Samaria, not these false places of politics and religion, but in Jerusalem, where the prophet, priest, and king One person will live in the house. See, God is remaining true to the promises that we've seen all throughout the scriptures. To Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, to Moses and Israel in Leviticus 26, to David in Judea in 2 Samuel 7, God is going to establish a faithful remnant through them and for them and through a coming king build an eternal messianic kingdom where every terrible thing will be undone the shelter and palace of david will be repaired the gaps and breaches of jerusalem will be rebuilt just like the days of old but even better but here's a surprise again if you look in verse 12 the lord says that the edomites the edom that is esau's descendants remember what paul says about Esau in Romans 9, Jacob or Israel I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Esau and the Edomites are going to be a part of this land again. And all the nations will live in it. That is, all the nations who live according to the name of the Lord. See, that's an incredible thing. Not only is God going to rebuild this kingdom, but all of a sudden the the historic enemies of Israel are going to become a part of Israel. And so we see all people who bear the name of the Lord will receive not only this renewed land, but an eternal son of David as the king. So Amos sees first the salvation of many Gentiles alongside of Israel. That's that first promise. But then the second promise, these last three verses of the book, or for some day in the future, even beyond the day of the Lord, when the land will be plentiful again. Again, we read the plowman and the treader will overtake the reaper and the sower. The, the one that's, uh, they'll, be, they'll just be so productive, they'll have so much that they're going to have to start planning again. <laughs> just immediately, just because they just they they have to harvest everything and immediately start planning again, just to 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 capitalize on on the productivity. And the land will flow with milk and honey and even sweet wine. The cities will be rebuilt. The fortunes will be restored. The vines and the gardens will grow, and all in it will be well, because the people will be planted. See, a few minutes ago, Lord says they'll be like chaff. It just gets shaken to the winds. But now they'll be planted and never again uprooted. 
And so the final word of Amos, the final word of his sermon, after he says, this is the Lord's declaration of judgment. This is the Lord's declaration of war. Verse 15 ends, the Lord your God has spoken. And he's spoken not a word of anger or animosity or hatred or destruction, but a word of healing and hope. Now, folks, the tragic reality is that most of Israel did not heed even this word. And so, like we've already said, Assyria comes along just a few years later and utterly decimates this land and its people. But eventually the Lord is true to his word. He allows his people to languish for a time, but he brings them back from exile and establishes them in the land again. He does do that, and the temple is rebuilt, and they do have some rulers again, but it wasn't glorious like they hoped it would be. The people came back to the land, but the religion never was like it once was. The, king, the kingship was never, you know, there was nobody as powerful as David or Solomon to ever come again. David's throne, for the most part, remained empty, and some other foreign powers reigned over it. After they survived uh, Syria and Babylon and Persia, then they got to deal with Greece for 400 years, and then Rome. I mean, it's just, uh, they just can't catch a break. And so we wonder here, did Amos miss the mark? Did he get his prophecy wrong? Or perhaps we just haven't seen far enough into the future yet. And I think here's the ultimate good news, because something more than Israel or Amos or any of us could ever imagine, something better is coming along. It's not just going to be a monarch, just some guy that happens to have some genetic connection to David, but it is going to, there is going to be a king that comes along that's a son of David who truly, eternally will sit on David's throne. And we met that person. And we met him in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of David. But here's a strange thing, folks. When he was, came into the world, Israel thought, surely all the things that Amos wrote about, he's going to, all the terrible things that the Syrians did to us, we're going to do the Romans now. That's what they were thinking. But Jesus was crowned king of the world on a cross, on an execution device, on Calvary, outside of the city of Jerusalem. I mean, they dragged him outside. He wasn't even in the city. But yet, that is where he was crowned. And to the outside world, that looks like foolishness and a stumbling block. That looks silliness. God comes into the world only uh, to be killed on a cross? What, What is that about? But the king rose on the third day, having defeated death, having gone into the underworld and announced his defeat of all the cosmic powers there. And he rose on the third day and ascended into heaven, and he has promised to return to earth with a new Jerusalem. Not like the old Jerusalem. Not the one where, you know, as David's dying, he whispers in Solomon's ear, like Don Corleone and the Godfather, to avenge me, Solomon. Where it's just David and all the wonderful things he did, he turns out to be just a corrupt bureaucrat in the end. And Solomon, all the wisdom he had, he ends up having hundreds of concubines because his, 
His uh, lusts couldn't be satiated. We're not going to deal with those kinds of kings anymore. We're going to deal with a king that was totally righteous and totally sinless and yet went to a cross for all the sinners that would come to him in faith one day. That's the kind of king we're going to have. And Jerusalem is not going to be like it used to be with these fortified walls and spears and and bows and arrows trained at anybody that comes to the door. But you read in the book of Revelation, that Jerusalem, all of its city gates are going to be open all the time because nobody could challenge King Jesus. And he welcomes all the nations to stream into his new kingdom. The only thing that won't be there is sin, hell, Satan, and death. But you'll look at all the history of the world You look at people that have lived in every era, from every age, every culture, every language, every color, and they will be in the kingdom of Jesus. Not because they were so wise or powerful, but because by grace through faith, that is where the Lord has placed them. And as we conclude this series, and next week we begin our Advent season, a season that comes to us in the darkest part of the year, the coldest part of the year of the year we like the people of of amos's day look forward with longing expectation for our coming king praying not only for the joy of christmas day yeah we all like that it's fun we have we if you're like my family we sit around and we open presents and we eat too much food and we take a nap and we play games just and have lights and all that fun stuff yeah, that, that's fine. That's nice. But it's going to be better than that because it's not just Christmas Day, but it is the day of the Lord where everything will be consumed in his holy resurrection and made new for all eternity. That's the advent that we're looking for. We love to look back at his first advent when he came to save us, but we're looking forward even more to his second advent when he'll finish the job in full. And so we sing, so as, as Amos in his, the, the last part of his sermon here is, is, uh, is reciting a song about the Lord, and so I'll, I'll end in that same spirit. I think we're going to sing this song this Sunday. I could be wrong about that, so don't blame me if I am. But Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and fears release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the world thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Let's pray. Lord, make us a people who hope in the kingdom of Christ alone and shape us into people who love others well in his name alone. We thank you for your grace and mercy that triumph over judgment. Keep us to the day when we see you face to face. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.